0: That's WISE, W-I-S-E dot com. WISE dot com.
1: Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast.
2: that you couldn't describe in a single sentence and kill everybody's interest in it, in the subject. They're all potentially really boring subjects.
3: Hello and welcome to the Ezra Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network so through december we're going to be doing a mix of new shows and a couple best ofs Uh, and the best ofs are going to be either shows that i really really love and want to be able to put back out into the world and into the feed or they're going to be shows that i think have a particular resonance to what is happening right now so this is a best of show please enjoy i have as almost all writers do admired michael for a long time and I was excited to get this chance to talk to him, and it was not—he was not what I expected at all, and it was not what I expected at all in the best possible way. Um, There is—I don't know—I'm a writer. (laughs) I know a lot of writers. There's a a force to his personality that you don't often see. Um, There—that actually I think helps make clear uh, a little bit of how he does what he does and why people want him around them. Um, you think a lot about reporting in terms of who the reporter is around, but there's also the question of who subjects want to be around. And I think you can see why Michael gets access and not everybody else does. And this is a show too, and a conversation too, where I sort of took an opportunity to to throw myself into it, to make myself a little bit vulnerable to the way that he assesses people and their character. And it was really interesting to watch him do that in real time. Really interesting to watch him you know, formulate hypotheses parts of which I thought were wrong, but also parts of which I thought were right. And, and to imagine how he might do that in his writing. So this is, uh, this is a podcast we get into some Trump stuff and some fairness and society stuff, but much more, it's a podcast about his craft and, and the way he creates a kind of writing that has made him genuinely a legend in his own field, in his own time. And to the extent possible, I was trying to get him to do that for us before us. And I think he did a bit. This was a lot of fun. It reminded me a bit of the N.K. Jemison episode, which, as you all know, I love. Uh, So, as always, my email, EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Again, EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. But here is Michael Lewis. Michael Lewis, welcome to the podcast. Pleasure to be here. All right. So we were just, I didn't want to leave this on the floor. You were just explaining why you moved out here and that it was that your stories would actually be in a drive, that the Bay Area has given you more than you would have thought.
2: Yeah. Well, so when my wife, Tabitha, and I we were looking around for a place to live, we wanted to live in, we wanted not to have a move around with kids. We want to stay in one place. And, and the question was, where in America can we be where the books are a drive, not a flight? And at least some of them. And this is what year? This is 97 98. So tech we're in like tech boom number 1. And I was in the middle uh I started writing a, a series for Slate about the internet boom and this that mushroomed into a book. It became the new new thing. Uh and that was the first example of this place yielding gold from a, from my point of view. Uh but but it really has been true that it kind of maybe half or more of my materials has been a drive. The money ball obviously came from here. Oakland A's. The Oakland A's. Uh, the blind side wasn't from here. However, there was the whole football story in that about what had happened to the, to the positions on the field and the left tackle had gotten very valuable. That was right out of the 49 that came right out of the 49ers front office, which was kind of the innovative front office at the time. um, the, so so some of my book of that, even that book was there. Uh, the Big Short, you think of it as a New York story, but two of the three main characters were Bay Area based. Um, and, you know, I just kind of, the Undoing Project, um, two Israeli psychologists, but one of them, Danny Kahneman. One of them, they're both, at, one was at Stanford and, it, and died at Stanford and left his papers there. And the other, Danny Kahneman lived up the hill from me. What do you think it is out here? It attracts ferment or disruption or whatever you want to call it, attracts uh, and encourages people who are experimenting with things. And a lot of what I'm writing about is people kind of fiddling with established ways of doing things. why do you think it does attract that? I mean, it's it's been doing, if you go back
3: in the history of this area, I'm, I'm from California. And so I've thought about this a lot. You get a lot of like cyclical eruptions of something like culture quaking out here. Yeah. Right, you have like the psychedelic '60s. You have the tech revolution. I mean, it come it comes again and again in different the forms. The semi-condu- semiconductors, semiconductors, like there's something interesting about the space that you know. Like one day when it's not tech anymore, it's going to be something
2: else. But I don't really have a great explanation of why. Well, one answer is what it doesn't have. It, it, it the social structure has not ossified. That's interesting, right? And uh, you can and maybe it won't, and, and maybe and- maybe it won't have it again because it will this time maybe it, if, well, if it does ossify, that's a very bad sign. Yeah. But the moment someone who comes from the outside feels like they're at a huge disadvantage because they're not from here is the moment that it loses, it loses its magic. I mean, one of the amazing things about moving here from, I mean, I'm from New Orleans. My wife is a military brat. We knew hardly anybody out here. Um, we knew a couple people, but we didn't And it took very little time to feel a part of the place. Huh. Uh, and that would not be true in New Orleans. And it it might be true in a in a different sort of way in New York, but not really. Uh, you certainly wouldn't be part of the social structure in New York. You'd be so. It's it's a. I think that the ease with which it takes in people from the outside, um, and the ease with which it takes in new ideas. I mean, there are vices that go with this too, but I think that's a that's a big part of it, and it's it's made a virtue of. Change. It's made a religion of change. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so, so that kind of like the person who has done is less interesting than the person who is about to do. Give me the vices. Well, uh as you saw it in the main character of The New New Thing, uh, Jim Clark, who I thought sort of embodied the place. He never lets anything settle in his life, including his relationships. So that almost e- it felt like each day, in his marriage, in his friendships, in his relationships with colleagues, you were almost starting over every day. He was starting uh, from a premise, let's figure out why we're doing this. And so that you lose a richness. The opposite of it is New Orleans where nothing ever changed when I was growing up anywhere. And there was a wonderful texture to life because it was layered. Uh, you know, it was it was the, the relationships and uh, ways of being had had been the same forever and a lot of life was a dance around what that forever was. Uh the there's a there's a shallowness to a life where you're kind of always disrupting yourself and your relationships and the people around you. Uh it's there's a surface equality to it. Just before you came in here I did
3: a podcast with Jenny O'Dell uh who's an artist from this area and and has written this great book called How to Do Nothing. And she was talking about the ways in which like we're moving towards a more decontextualized society, like less context of place, less context in our communication. We like tweeted each other, like phone calls have become Facebook message and iMessages and all the rest of it. And it it strikes me that those two things are related, that if you don't have a lot of respect for what's come before, like context is what has come before. And if you're dismissive of that, then on the one hand, you can create a lot of new stuff. And on the other hand,
2: you're very unrooted. That's right. I think that's a that's right. the the, the rootlessness of the place it, it's a, it's, a, it's a it's a price you pay for how the place is. I think that's right. Um, the way I feel rooted here is through nature. the the, the, the counter right the, the <laughs> counterbalance <laughs> that's why I came out here right the counterbalance is, I mean, yesterday I spent my day hiking up Cataract Falls Trail in Marin, and there was no one there, and it was I was you know I, it, it was timeless. Uh, and getting out, my antidote to the, the surface quality here is one part, one, one antidote is just getting out into the woods. It's so generative and it's so, there's so much just stuff going on and it isn't just tech stuff that it really is a handy place for a writer to live, uh, for a writer like me to live anyway. Um, and it, it, it was remarkable how sort of little effort it took to just drop in here and make a life here.
3: So a writer like you, you like violate all of my um, preconceptions about how it should work to be a writer. No, you, no, I don't. You do. So I I've always been very much on the side of you don't want the journalism toolkit. What you want is like obsessive knowledge about a topic and your ability to to dive into a lot of different topics and and find that knowledge is something that that, that I really admire. Why are you good at that?
2: I really like what I do. I think this is a big thing. I don't think of it as work very, you know, I really don't. The only thing that makes it look like work is I get paid for it. Uh, but it's, I get such pleasure out of finding a subject that I want to know more about and then figuring out how to convey the subject. So I'm willing to put more effort into it. I think that's part part of it. Part of it is just huge amounts of luck in the, in the intersection I've had with subject matter. Like I couldn't teach a class on how to find a book subject and how to write the book. Huh. I, I can't tell you exactly how I do what I do. Is is a lot of accident involved, and I've been very lucky in just having really rich material to deal with. If you wanted to take the opposing view, I'm not particularly able. I'm, if I want to argue <laughs> the case, I'm not particularly capable. I'm not particularly able. um I just happen to get really lucky. I'd be willing to argue that case, and the, and it starts with. I land at Solomon Brothers in 1985 with the ambition to be a writer, and and no one else with a, that sort of ambition is in the middle of this thing. And I land not only that Solomon Brothers, but the, really the part of Solomon Brothers, it's changing finance into what it's going to become. And I'm doing it, and I have privileged access to the material. Now, that book, Liar's Poker, made The Big Short possible. In some ways, it made The New New Thing possible because it gave me credibility with Jim Clark and he let me into his life. It's ditto Billy Bean and Moneyball. It opened up, like, the world to me and made me, um, in the in the minds of a lot of people who read books looking for uh, kind of business insight or, you know, how-to knowledge, an authority on a subject that they cared about. It's just incredibly lucky that that happened. Well, that's part one. The huge amount of luck in the, what I've in, in my interaction, my collision with good subject matter. Two, you go back to my college years. I when I was doing my senior thesis in college, I really fell in love with this kind of total immersion in a in a topic and and kind of just living. What was the subject. your thesis on? It was on the way Donatello, the, the Italian sculptor, used uh, classical sources. The way he. What he was, it was really about what the Renaissance thought it was doing before it called itself the Renaissance. This er, early Renaissance Italian sculptor, who's, you know, archaeologists are, you know, they didn't call them archaeologists, but people are are digging up uh, Roman ruins and finding old Greek statues, and artists are paying attention to them in a new way. And the humanist writers are encouraging them to what was it? what did he think he was doing what how did he use what he knew what did he think was classical and what did, what what did he think he was doing and it was a ri- wholly original line of inquiry um and it was fresh uh i was way over my skis you know like i couldn't read italian uh but but i did get enormous pleasure in in that so
3: how do you do total immersion in that when you can't read italian what does total immersion mean in that context
2: the first thing was there was this completely unused resource, which has since been published as a book that was being, had been developed by some Columbia art history professors called the Census of Antique Works Known to Renaissance Artists, where they had bothered to go and try to class, to to find out when certain statues had been dug up, where, so what, I, I could piece together, for example, what Donatello knew, and no one had asked the question, you know, what exactly had he known? Uh... No one asked question quite that way, so I so I had a body of material there that was just it was almost journalistic. I didn't have to do the original work. I didn't have to go figure out when things got dug up and where the Donatello saw them. Someone had already done it, but no one had really asked. Well, what did that What does that mean? Now that we know he saw that, how can you see what he got from that in the in his own work? The broader point was I just lived and breathed that thesis for six months, and I still have like every Princeton graduate will tell you, because the thesis is a huge deal there and it's ob- obligatory. The classic Princeton graduate nightmare is you you discover you have to write a thesis a month before it's due and you don't know what it's about and you wake up in a sweat. Uh, so it was, th- it, was, it was a scary, meaningful experience. And I came out of it thinking I want to do this over and over and over again. And that's kind of what I've done with my career is I find subjects that I really want to live with for a long period of time. In a long period of time, sometimes is two years, and sometimes it's like with the Undoing Project was eight years. Uh, and I, I kind of noodle over it. Uh, I, 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 I worry it in my head to the point where I can't be worried over anymore, and then I write it. So a rule I have is that people who attribute everything to how good they are are usually really
3: lucky, <laughs> and people who attribute everything to how lucky they are are usually pretty damn good. <laughs> and well, but you know, no, I'm going to put you on this for a minute, which is. One thing that you're skipping over there is you're very sensitive to when something you're near is a story. And as somebody who's been an editor of a lot of writers, that's actually not an easy thing. Knowing when something you've said or somebody has said to you is a story. Is interesting.
2: I had I a magazine, Jerry Maserati, who was my editor at the New York Times Magazine for a decade, who I loved working with, said to me kind of as a throwaway line, he said the biggest problem in his life was finding writers who knew what was interesting. Yep. And that is—it's a funny thing, right? How, you, how do you teach that? Um, because what's interesting is it seems just highly subjective. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess you're kind of there's a matter there's a, there's there's an element of luck in being blessed with with. So what I th- the way I think of it is this: I've been I've been very lucky that the things that I'm interested in seem to interest a lot of other people. Yeah, that's fair, right? And and, and willing to and trust they, that. And they're all there. Are lots of eccentric, interesting characters who are. Obsessed with things that no one else is interested in. Uh, That that's a fairly common personality type. People come to me with book ideas, for example, all the time. They want to write a book, and I don't have the heart to tell them. I mean, I one way I do tell them, but I don't think that many people are going to be like interested in that. I mean, you might be able to make it interesting to a big crowd, but I wouldn't bet on it. Uh, So it's it is true that I've been lucky. I'm lucky that lo- what I've been interested in, a lot of other people have been interested in. But this is the other thing. I'm the common I've... man. That's what, you're, that's what I've got. I've got the common touch.
3: <laughs> Sitting here in the Bay Area, yeah, yeah, drinking, I, drinking I, your sparkling water. <laughs> yeah,
2: I, I, but I'm, I just happen to be an, I'm an Ivy League graduate with a common touch.
3: <laughs> but the thing that you do over and over, almost like a magic trick, is take something that if you described it, people would say that's boring and make it interesting. Or oh, well, prove so that it's interesting. So this
2: is a funny story. This almost contradicts what I just said, but I'll say it because it's true. Um, when I'm working on something and people, I don't like to talk about it. Maybe partly because of this, I do find that if people ask me what I'm working on and I say what's on my how I'm thinking about it, they're not interested at all. Yeah. It shuts down the conversation. I'm doing a podcast on referees. I'm doing a book about baseball statistics.
3: Yeah, I'm doing. I mean, you know, the, bureaucrats if, in the federal government. Bureaucrats. They, they just. I I get these I am so used to getting the most long shot candidate in the 1996 presidential race. <laughs> I get these I get
2: these I get these blank stares in re- response. So maybe there's another way of putting this that maybe the thing is a capacity to make people interested in what you're interested in on the page. Um and uh but but it is true this it's true I don't think I've written a book that you couldn't describe in a single sentence and kill everybody's interest in it, in the subject. They're all potentially really boring subjects. I think that's right. So how do you know when it's interesting? I just get excited. Mm-hmm. And, I, you know, why do I get excited? And is it, a, is it a story that you find
3: in there? Is it the actual topic itself? I mean, what, is, what latches you? Usually a person. I mean, usually mm-hmm. people. It is usually a person. Usually
2: characters. It's usually a character, some interaction between a character and a situation event. I may give you an It just happened to me two days ago. Um, I'm writing something. I'm writing a, um, I'm going to write seven or 8,000 words to stick on to the back of the fifth risk when it comes out in paperback. And it's going to be, I think, mainly about the government shutdown, but I wanted to find a character to tell a t- story through someone who had been shut down. And I found this guy who had, revolutionized Coast Guard search and uh, rescue missions with a a better machine for predicting where something that was floating on the ocean would be if you knew it was on point A 36 hours ago, where it would be now. And um, it saved thousands of lives uh, because they know where to look. This is a fun fact, 10 on average, 10 Americans a day go lost at sea missing at sea. The coast guard's looking. No, no kidding. 3 die. Uh and it used to be like 5 died. And anyway, when it all of a sudden I d- and I've only talked to this guy once. I'm now going to get to know him and write about him. Um over the next few months. But what just el- electrified me when I got him on the phone was he was in his car and he was lost. And he says and I said you're you're not really lost. He says I am, and I get lost all the time. And my family makes fun of me for this. Uh, This is just fabulous. Already we have a character, a guy who can't find his way around the country who has figured out how to save people who are lost at sea. How did you find him? Well, there's a treasure trove of, um, it's a database of characters in the federal government that's kept by uh, an organization in Washington called the Partnership for Public Service. And they have this database because they have for a decade or so, maybe more than that, uh, been trying to celebrate people in government who've done extraordinary things and giving that there's an award ceremony and all the rest. And so people get nominated for these awards. And so they have thousands and thousands of vignettes about people uh, in the government. And I was just flipping through these vignettes. Uh, and I was interested in this guy, even if he wasn't getting lost all over every time. But that's great. It's great. It's great. Right. So, so that's what starts to get me. I feel my palms start to sweat. I get so excited. Uh, I think this is just going to be fun.
3: So you say over the next couple of months, you're going to get to know
2: him. How do you do that? Like, how do you, how do you turn somebody from
3: a character into a story? Like what, what is your, you're very Good at
2: that. So, what is your what What happens it's, now? It's not. It's not that complicated. You go. You go.
3: It isn't if you're good at it. There are there are a couple things. I'm somebody who my my journalism is like almost entirely non people based. It's much harder for me to do people. Is it? Yeah. It, I am extremely comfortable in abstraction. Why do you think that is? Because the part that gets my palm sweaty is a question I don't understand hmm. the answer to. Right. And I don't trust people's answers in general. <laughs> right. I'm much more comfortable. I, I don't trust individual story. Right. Like the way I think about the world is in structures. Right. I think of people as like contingent on their structures. I right. mean, I think about myself as a product of context. Right. And so the way I view the world is also the way I view my journalism. It's not to say I don't love the people I write about or that I don't enjoy writing about people, but it is a lift for me. Right. In a way that researching like the underlying question of why is polarization increasing? Like that is completely natural.
2: Right. No, I can understand that. And I do that I, and and I do that much less well if I don't have a person, I get less I'm less interested. But on the other hand, if I don't have a question or an idea, I'm not inter- interested either. Um but so the way I get to know people to write about them is I, I I have to spend enough time with them that they forget I'm writing about them. That's the big thing. Because normally there's a degree of self-consciousness at yeah. the beginning that makes it hard to get to them. And at some point they surrender because at some point they realize no matter what they do I'm going to figure out who they are, uh, and it's interviewing. I mean, in this case I'll probably interview wife, his wife, his children. His he doesn't know any of this yet, hope so. I hope he doesn't listen to the pod. But, <laughs> but I go spend time with him in his house, yeah. and I'll. The couple of tricks are uh, just sitting here like this across a desk is much less useful than doing something. With, with with someone, I, I learned this. It's funny. i I was when I was coming out of college, I applied for a job to lead teenage girls, basically rich teenage girls through Europe. And it was they hired recent graduates basically of Harvard, Princeton, and Yale to do this. It was a fancy tour company, although and the, they paid you very well, and the trip was it was fantastic. And a lot of people wanted one of these jobs. And I went to go see the owner of the company for my interview. And when I got there, for the interview, he said, I don't have time for the interview because they've just told us we need to move our office furniture around. Will you help me move the desk, move the chairs? And I said, sure. And so we moved, we spent an hour moving furniture and he called me back the next day and said, you got the job. And it turned out he did this with everybody. That everybody, that, That's great. The, the next guy who came in for the interview or a girl came in and they moved the furniture back. <laughs> and Because what he <laughs> wanted to do is see how you were when you were doing something. And because that's what you, you weren't going to be interviewing these teenage girls that you were, you, you were, you were going to be moving through space with them, dealing with problems, uh, co- collaborating, cooperating with other leaders, that kind of thing. Um, uh, and so he taught me something. I, so I try, I orchestrate situations where I'm doing things with people to, and I, and the things I do with them often will never end up in print, but I'll know something about them as a result. Do you have a couple go-to Sports is great. Okay. No if you can do that. Uh, I mean, if you can get him on a basketball court or a tennis court, or I mean, with Maury Taylor, the the presidential candidate in 1996, he kept telling me he could beat me in any, anything. And I said, pick your sport. And he says, racquetball. And sure enough, sure enough, he destroyed me in racquetball. Greco
3: Roman wrestling.
2: Yeah, yes. <laughs> 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 so he, so, you know, sports or, I mean, just do, do what they like to do. Um, with Billy Bean, the best thing I found when when Moneyball was to go see minor league players with him. I'd get in the car hmm. with him and we would drive out to Modesto where they had a, a single A team. And just the drives and the in the ballpark, it was just, that was very useful. And is it tape recorder
3: on the whole time, no. taking notes, or are you just taking there notes. getting impressions? Well, so it
2: depends. And this is just by feel. It, I In the very beginning, when I start to write about someone, I don't usually have the notepad out just because it's, it's a little off. It depends on, it depends on the situation, but sometimes I will, sometimes I won't, but sometimes it just, you know, they'll say, look, it'll be helpful for me to write some of these stuff down and they say, fine. And the, then the notepad is just there all the time. And so I don't record interviews, but I do, I do scribble the whole time. So
3: then what happens when they say something you want to use?
2: Oh, if they say something that I want to use then I don't have the notepad out, then I, I mean, if it's really good, I'll pull the notepad out. Uh, but, I find I can get them to re say stuff if they, if they have to you know I can go revisit the subject. I do I you tr- I try to create a relationship that's not an artificial journalist subject relationship. That's the that's the big point. And as a result in the end I have this um inventory of former subjects who are just friends now. I mean they're just in my life in a way that they they'll never leave my life. There's a um did you ever see the movie Big Fish? No. It's a wonderful movie. Uh, the story is traveling salesman in small town in like Alabama, and he and he comes and it's through his kids' eyes. And every time he comes home from one of his trips, he tells this exotic story about this person he met, the tallest person in the world who was ten feet tall, uh, Siamese twins who were the most beautiful women in the world. He, he has all these, and he tells me, and the kids think as they grow up, they think they first believe it all when they're little, and then they grow up, they think. Dad was this wonderful storyteller and he make up all these characters. And then dad dies, and all these characters, the 10 foot tall, the giant, the Siamese twins, show up at his funeral. They actually existed. And I feel that that my funeral will be like that. That I'll i t- I've told my kids about all these kids I go, these people I've met and become friends with and collected. Uh, and they're all in my life. You know, they that they, they kind of don't believe that they don't believe that they exist, but they do exist. Uh and they uh you know you so you a relationship is formed in a way that's uh rich and interesting um uh, so that's a byproduct of the way i go about my work um sounds like it's probably a byproduct of being good at friendship uh can that doesn't hurt right i'd have i do have lots of close friends and it doesn't that doesn't hurt cuz like you
3: you walked in here it, it, you're not what i thought you would be you're like, there's much more like charismatic force to you than there are the most writers. Like you're, you're somebody who people would want to be around. Well, that's nice of you to say.
2: Not everybody agrees. <laughs> uh, the the funny moment with all the subjects comes when I write about them, because the truth is, the the brutal, ugly truth is that up to the moment I ri- I write about them, I am kind of using them in that I'm not, when I start to write about them, I'm not worried about their feelings. Really? No. I, something comes over me when I see a blank huh. sheet of paper. And I do... Because I struggle with that a lot. There's always a jolt. Always a jolt. I Because I want to write about them. how... I mean, I, the deal I make with myself, the, so I sleep at night, is I basically don't write at length about anybody I don't in some way em, either admire or, or enjoy. and And I assume that my... Feelings for that person, if they're accurately conveyed, are going to leave the reader more or less feeling the way I feel, which is a nice feeling. And I do this as a rule because I don't want to spend two years of my life working on a book about someone I can't stand. So many subjects have just fallen by the wayside because I find the people in the middle of it just obnoxious to me. But having said that, um, often I have a sense that the person I'm writing about has a slightly different view of himself or herself than I have of them. And then it's going to be a little shocking when they read what I write about them, and sometimes upsetting. So I have had subjects that, that when they read about it be a little upset with me, and then we can, then we move past it. And usually, the way we move past it is some close friend of theirs, or spouse, or child reads it and says, "Dad, yeah, that's you." <laughs> and so, so, so they say, "Okay, all right." Uh, it's the jolt my i think the subjects when i do my job well i think the subjects i write about experience that same little discomfort you experience when you first hear your voice on tape mm-hmm. you know that feeling it's not me you know oh do, i know that feeling yeah it's just i don't do <laughs> i sound like
3: that the thing i hated the most about myself was my voice so the idea that i now operate at least partly in a voice-based medium is a deep irony of my so life
2: so go back how did you even decide you didn't like your voice because in middle school and high
3: school, and frankly, like even when I was early in my professional career, I got made fun of for having a lisp. Is that? But you don't have a lisp. I have a little one, do you? Um, and it comes out sometimes, oh. um, and you'll notice it more now if I say it. But it—I notice it, huh? So early on, when I was doing, oh my god! I mean, I, um, I would, I would do anything not to hear my own voice. Really, And cable news. I mean, I would be like on Twitter looking to see if anybody noticed it was, it was debilitating. That part you, is that true it. when you were in school? School was the worst. Yeah. So what did you do to avoid, you were just quiet? No, I just got made fun of yeah. I'm, that. That is my problem. I'm okay. not quiet.
2: Right. <laughs> <laughs> there's so a, there's you're cursed. There's, a, you're
3: cursed, there's a story, um, a, which I don't think I've told publicly before. But when I was in eighth grade, I was not a popular kid, like all the way through school. Um, And when I was in eighth grade, we had like homeroom and, you know, there was like president of homeroom and whatever. And I ran for secretary because in the morning, and this is before I had much self-consciousness about my voice, you would read like this fact of the day, you know, like today, like it turns out 10 people get lost at sea every day in America. And I went out, you know, the the vote was taken and I won. I was so excited. And then the teacher told my mom later um, that they had to yell at the kids because, like, the poppy kids said, vote for him, because then we can, like, hear him lisp it out every day. Ooh. And that got back to me. Ooh. And, like, Ooh. from there. <laughs>
2: um. So, yeah, hearing your own voice is devastating. But so when did you first make the leap into this form? When, were you feeling still self-conscious about your voice when you went into podcasting? Yeah, That's brave. I am much more, I mean... <laughs> By then I'd done enough cable
3: and other things that it was clear it wasn't holding me back. When I leapt into cable, I used to host television shows and stuff like that. That was, to me, the fact that that was happening was baffling. And probably that above anything just cured me of it. Did did anybody say anything about your voice? Yeah. Um, I mean, in comment sections and that kind of thing, but it was working. I was getting perfectly fine ratings and being invited back. So I was eventually convinced by public response that it was not However I felt about it, it was not such an issue that people would not follow along with other things. Um, And so by the time I was podcasting, it wasn't as big of a deal for me. But to listen to it, it's one reason I I really hate, I will do almost anything to get reporting transcribed
2: because I don't want to have to do it myself. You don't want to listen have to listen listen. to your own own voice on the recordings. Yeah. So I don't do the recordings because I can't, bear wasting the time even reading the transcript because so much of its junk (laughs) yeah well there's that too right and so and the filter that is naturally there when you're only writing down the things that interest you is a nice filter i I like having it having that filter present in the room when i'm just when i'm looking at the material you know that if it rises to the level of interest that i'll go to the trouble of writing it down on a pad um If it can't even do that it's likely not to ever end up it shouldn't end up in anything i write about (laughs) and having to kind of relive the conversations in a recording i can't stand it Uh, having said that you know i guess i just violated that rule because the way podcasting works is you got to interview everybody you got to record everything and and i would get these massive you know thick transcripts uh of every conversation i did for the podcast and i would go through that the way i guess some journalists would go through their their interviews when you go through it are you surprised what's in there i'm actually kind of surprised by how little surprises me in that <laughs> in that in that <laughs> I, what i remembered as interesting is usually what was interesting every now and then something come, jumps out of it out of every transcript that that uh that wouldn't have occurred to me to be of use are you
3: very structured
2: when you go into the interview? No,
3: not at all. So that's an interesting pairing there that not you're not all. structured, but you're
2: good at knowing what was in there. Yeah, that's an odd thing. I, I no, I don't. I like to wander in conversation. Yeah. Conversation is play.
3: Not me, as you can tell from this. <laughs>
2: <laughs> no, but it's
3: play. I like and a it, straight linear No, line. No,
2: but it's, it's play. And also if you, if you don't, if it's not structured, you never know where they're going to lead you. Uh, like they might lead you to their childhood lisp uh which obviously if someone was writing about you that would be that's great material right <laughs> I and mean, it's great material but it's 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 also it suggests that you were you're highly sensitive to what other people think of you uh that's interesting right um i mean people are sensitive to what other people think of them but that you're you're m- maybe a bit more because you are you you're actually not you're if someone, if I walked out and someone said, "Does he have a list?" I'd say, "No." It was more pronounced pronounce when I was that. younger. Okay,
3: that was kind of. I did speech therapy when I was older, actually. Right. Um, to try to to try to bring it down. But that's interesting, right? So, that, so the, that's a quick jump. I'm not sure you're wrong that I'm more sensitive to what people think of me. In some ways, I think that's actually true. But that's a that's an interesting jump. Tell me why you decided that would be true.
2: Um, your manner a little bit. What's in my manner? Uh, a certain anxiety. That's probably true. Uh, you're a little worried about what I thought of you, which is interesting because you're interviewing me. That's interesting. I'm not sure that's true. Okay. Um, and we're, we're, de- we're descending into a therapy session here. But it's uh, a podcast, but it's a podcast. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> and but, but and, this is and in, because you write about people. So I'm interested to see the way you do this. So, uh, uh, th- so the, t- so I told you one trick, yeah. the, the, the two tricks I would tell people who, had, one trick is doing things with them, not just talking to them. And the second is, um, try to look for things that they're not self-conscious about. Like you're self-conscious about your voice. So how you're speaking, you might say the least about you, uh, but maybe you're not so self-conscious about your choice of socks. And you've got these very <laughs> odd socks now. You, they've got, I don't know what those are. Those gray are about, with they,
3: avocados they, on them. Is that, they're avocados. Okay. Let, I, let they, me say I this. When you, they look, when they look you like allies. A, when you have a new baby at home, one of the things I've noticed is laundry begins to fall off. There you go.
2: And I'm not even <laughs> sure. Do they match your socks? They do. Um, oh, yeah, totally. Okay. But um, often, if you look around a person's house or person's office, or the things that are on display... Are the least revelatory about them. Um, and it's little things. It's, it's this is, comes out right out of art history. Um, when when Bernard Berenson, the great American connoisseur and uh picture dealer, um went to Italy in the early 20th century and started to try to classify, catalog the works of art there. I mean, no one knew what you know, what was a Leonardo and what was a Boltrafio or, Uh you know, and the question was, you know, who did what? And he borrowed a technique from, that was been created by, I think, a Swiss doctor named Morelli. Um, And the idea was, look at the parts of the painting where the artist was least self-conscious. Now, a lot of paintings are virgins and and child, baby Jesus and and the Virgin Mary. Uh, A picture like that, Pay no attention to the face of the virgin or the face of the baby because it's gonna look like all the other faces of the virgins and the face of the baby, because the art the artist has a certain obligation. The artist is thinking about it. But look at the toenails of the virgin or the toenails of the baby, and all of a sudden you'll see the artist. You'll see something he does that's distinctive and only him because he's not because he's not being he doesn't have to conform and he's not thinking about it as much. And so if you you can view people that way, you can look at little things about them and start to got to get a sense of bigger things about them. Um, so that's, it's, that that's not a, it, it, it's not a recipe for understanding the person you're writing about, but it's not a, it's a, it's a, it's a tip, but it's a way to get leads. I
3: mean, it's, and, I'm thinking about this right now because I'm, it's really valuable to me to see you do it to me. So I'm thinking about what I think is true here. So I would not have told you or the audience here about the voice if that anxiety hadn't more or less diminished, right? If I I was really self-conscious there, it wouldn't be in this podcast. Like maybe it won't be. Well, no, everything goes (laughs) in. We don't, we don't edit these. Um, but the underlying thing there that there's a sensitivity to external feedback is true. Yeah. Right. Like whether or not it rests in that place now, it's very true. And so like, fine. Like that was the interesting jump to me that, you well, found what, the general. So, what, specific did you say, there. what
2: did you say? You said one of the things you, just, you said that was revealing is that comments about your lisp or lack thereof, your lisp, you found in comment sections. I don't read comment sections. The fact that you went and read a comment section about yourself says well, something.
3: Yeah. Well, in general, I don't either. But, um, but back then, when I was starting, I did. Yeah. Yeah. I was a. So, I came into journalism through blogging. Right. And blogging, I remember. Yeah. Part of that was like, it was all about comment sections back then. Right now we don't have them because they're all messes. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Um, but back then you did. And,
2: um, and that's an interesting thing. So do you, I struggle a lot. with, with how. I, so how I wouldn't pretend to be feedback. able to write about you right now. But I, so you spend mm-hmm. a lot of time with someone. And you develop yeah. you kind of little theories of their character. Yeah. And you test the theory and it's found wanting. And you develop another theory of their character. And you try to figure out kind of what's going on in there, why they do what they do, and, and, uh, and how it applies to the, the thing you're writing about. And sometimes the things about the person are really powerful and useful to the piece of writing. And sometimes they're not. Uh, you know, it's not, life isn't neat like literature. Do
3: you worry that focusing on individual stories can, because people themselves are so idiosyncratic and sometimes such bad narrators of why they're doing what they're doing in the first place, Mm -hmm. do you worry that it can mislead from truer generalities? The Um, specific can mislead the general?
2: Not really. It's more, I, 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 if it, if I feel it is that, I use only what I need. I mean, I don't, I don't, you don't want to distract from the story by getting lost in idiosyncratic personality. Uh, And I don't think, I don't think I really do that. It's more using the parts that are useful to the story. Um, the, The person's personality, the character is another ingredient in the meal. And if it's a really salty personality, you might not want to put the whole thing in the meal uh but you want a little bit of it um so not exactly i think of it a different way um i think sometimes people if you can attract a person a reader to a person to a character that character that character can pull them through material they would not get through otherwise there's no way anybody would have read my descriptions of collateralized debt obligations in the big short if they hadn't been absolutely hooked by michael burry or Steve Eisman, or Charlie Ledley. Uh, I mean, that they were that the people made them want, want to know. Uh, and so I, that's what I, I think the real use value of the characters is that. They that they grab you and they make you want to know. So did you
3: know, you, you had said that you often get hooked by the person. Did you know you wanted to do a book about collateralized debt obligations and you found the people? Or did you find the people and that led to the book?
2: I knew that there was potentially a book in the financial crisis, but I was prepared that there might not be one. I didn't know how to tell it until I found this pool of people, and there was about 15 of them, who had made very big, and for themselves very risky bets on the collapse of the subprime mortgage market and by implication, the collapse of the financial system. And uh, I did a casting search I I went and spoke to all the people I could find who had made that bet. And it was pretty easy to figure out who had done it because there are only a few places you can make that bet. And you go to the people, you go to the casino and they can tell you who all the high rollers are and picked who would be essentially the teachers, the the readers, teachers, uh, the best people to teach the reader about this. Um, and when I found that there was this pool of people and I waded into that pool and, talked to a few of them, I then I knew there was a book. I knew through I didn't know who they were who I was going to use at first, but I knew that there was enough there uh, to write a book about them. Yazer Clache will be back after a short break.
3: Wise is the app that
0: makes using different currencies easy? Need to send dollars to your cousin in Bali fast, getting paid in another currency and don't want to lose out because of inflated exchange rates? Want travel money without having to slog through the currency exchange kiosk? Then WISE might just be your answer. From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, WISE takes the guesswork out of converting currencies. You can send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate with no markups and no hidden fees. In 2023, people sent over $100 billion worldwide with WISE. What's more, over half of those transfers got to their destination in less time than it takes to listen to this ad. Whether you're traveling, sending money abroad, or doing business, let WISE help you manage your money in different currencies with ease. Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W I S E.com. WISE.com. wise.com.
1: Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.
3: Do you ever go into one of these projects and find a tension between the topic you really want to cover and the story, the person whose story really grabs you? So, like, you find someone you want to write about CDOs. And what you find is someone who is in an adjacent field, but oh, it's like, it's almost there and they're,
2: they're great. Oh, oh, that's interesting. Um, not, not in the, I don't think it, I, I, that's not a, that's not something I, that resonates with me. I, um, because I don't really go in wanting to write about CDOs. I want to write about, I want to write about why these people didn't make the mistake. It's how you structure the underlying question. uh, That's right. So the the question I'm trying to answer is different. And in the bargain, I'm going to have to explain some things because they had to explain some things. Uh, But I'm not thinking about, oh, I want to write about CDOs or even in the abstract about the financial crisis. I was really wanting to know why some people missed it.
3: Let me ask you then, because that's such a great way of putting that. So I want to go through a couple of your books and ask you what you thought the question of them was. All right. It's like
2: the fifth risk. There were two. that leaped to mind one was what are the what is the consequence of a president trump who is who is uh, has got a world historic indifference to the enterprise he's meant to run the the federal government like what are the risks involved of of this enterprise landing in such unprepared hands such willfully unprepared hands so th- then the second thing was, what is it about the people who are doing the jobs in government that make them want to do it? um because if I- I'd be furious. I mean, the way i'd be f- just just watching politicians get up and bash it's like why it would be as if you worked for Apple, and the CEO of Apple every day got up and said how horrible Apple was. And how horrible <laughs> the people who worked in Apple was. And all, and they only went looking for people who made mistakes at Apple. And then those people were pilloried. And anybody who did really good things inside of Apple and made it better got no attention whatsoever. What is it about these people? Who are these people who will not just... just go to work in those conditions, but work and embrace these big challenges? So those were those were kind of two things, but the big thing was—I mean—I groped my way towards the, the first question was the the initial question, because when Trump was elected, I had this this pit in my stomach. I mean, every a lot of people did, but and it was—but but, uh, it took me a while to frame the question, and uh, and I finally framed it in terms of risk that I come out just finished a book, The Undoing Project, about how how um, imperfect human beings are when they're moving through the world, trying to gauge probabilities, trying to judge risk. And they're, are some systematic errors they make. So it kind of it, in a funny way, it became a natural extension of that to ask, what are the risks that the federal government is, are managing that we are not perceiving properly and that we may, that may kill us because this guy ended up in charge of it trail fever. Um, so that started not as a book, but as a magazine, a series of magazine pieces for the new Republic. They very quickly, I decided, oh, this is a book. I'm going to do, I'm going to do what Dickens did. I'm going to write my novel and, and, and serialize it as a, uh, write it kind of on the fly and not knowing where it's going to end. I'm going to be publishing the the beginnings of it. Um, the new Republic sent me out to cover the 96 presidential campaign, um, The 96th president, the candidates, Bob Dole and Bill Clinton, were effectively inaccessible, that you could interview them if you really wanted to, and you get very little out of it. And there was a massive enterprise called the American media that was spending all of its time trying to find out one little thing about Bob Dole or Bill Clinton. And I decided that more interesting than that was everything else around the presidential campaign like it was that one there were all these people running for president that no one was paying attention to because they weren't going to win but they had passionate followings small passionate follow- but nevertheless they told you something about the country that that 50 people wanted this person to be president and i had respect for the level the intensity of the interest that people the supporters had in these more marginal candidates uh and it was actually in contrast to the kind of tepid support that both Dole and Clinton seemed to have. Like people were kind of around for business reasons. They didn't love them. And, um, and so I started to, I viewed my, my first take on the situation was, if I follow the more marginal people, I'll get to something real, uh, that everybody, they're running and the people who are, who are interested in them are really interested in them if for authentic, not business reasons and, that's that took me off in a, on a jag, it, and it also gave me material, you know, that that I could write about from week to week. And then what happened is I s- discovered this guy Maury Taylor, who was going to spend seven million dollars getting seven thousand votes in Iowa, New Hampshire.
3: He's sort of like the Howard Schultz of the Democratic.
2: But you know what he is? He's a he's a prim, he's a he's a um, he's a forerunner of Trump in some ways without That's the mali- without the malice yeah. but with actual business ability but th- what was his business what did he do he still does he um he's got a company called Titan Tire and Wheel and it makes giant tires that are bigger than you or me uh for for machines that are 10 times bigger than you or me and uh very successfully he's exactly you know he is if you were going to pick a business if you believe that that the, that what you need most to be president is business aptitude, which I don't. But if you believe that, he's exactly the guy you'd want. Uh, and he had not a mean bone in his body and uh, had a kind of humanity about him that I found quite moving and interesting. And he was funny as all get out without trying to be funny. And where he had me, and so I realized I had a character that I could use I, as a runner, I could keep bringing him back, and he even after he got out of the race, as a kind of everyman commentator on this process. But where he actually had me, and I still, I had tears running down my face. I was laughing so hard, is he was marched into this public school in Iowa. Um, like an ordinary presidential candidate. Indeed, he was treated like an ordinary presidential candidate. He was on the stage in the debates with Bob Dole, and, you know, he was there, and... Oh, was he on the Republican side? Yeah. i have forgotten that. All, it was, they were, Clinton had already sewed up. There was hardly anybody else out there on the Democratic right, side. Right, yeah, it was a, it was so, a contested so was, Republican. Right, so, so it was Dole and, you know, 15 other guys. And it's been
3: a minute since I read Trail Fever, but I loved it. I read it when no, I was no, getting so, into political so journalism.
2: journalism. He, walk, he marches into this... I, he gets these Winnebago's and he puts speakers on the front and blares Bruce Springsteen as he goes into every town, pulls be- ke- kegs of beer out the back and has a beer party at every town in Iowa. And everybody loves him. It's a question like, could this guy be president? And uh, he rolls with his Winnebago's music blaring uh, into this public school at nine o'clock in the morning um, and gets in front of this crowd of teachers. It's kind of supposed to be kind of civics lesson time for a thousand students and their teachers and he gets down in the well and he says the first thing he says is tell me what the most important thing in life is and you know people are raising their hand love integrity he goes nah 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 money and he pulls out a roll of $100 bills. Who wants it? And all the kids start screaming, I want it, I want it. It's, it was such a violation of the way a person is supposed to behave. This is why I say he was in anticipation of Trump because Trump you know, Trump is, is Maury Taylor with lots of problems, with vices and poison in him and all that. But but it's the sort of thing Trump might do. So they're like stand up and actually say something that nobody's supposed to say. And that you're really not supposed to have you run for president and just say it and see what happens. And you can see the teachers sinking in their chairs and like, no, no, don't teach them this. But it was, the, he was so funny uh, that I just thought, I want to see where this ends. Uh, and so I used him. I, I mean, he wasn't all I wrote about. I wrote about all of them. But, um, but he gave me. He gave me hope for the narrative. Now, you asked me a question earlier. Yeah. Do I ever get distracted by a character and miss the story? Now, that you could argue that there is a case of me getting distracted by a character and missing the story, which is, of course, the campaign to win the presidency in 1996, which was never much of a campaign, and no one will want or ever want to read about it. Uh, and I say... The character changed my idea of what the story was. It was like what happens when you move these people through this space who aren't formal buttoned up candidates and uh what does it tell us about our country? Um so I just changed the question.
3: Right. That that to me was, is always been what's interesting about that book. 96 is not a fascinating election. No. That's a fascinating book and it seems to me to be a the reason I'm I'm pushing us on a questioning is if you can take a topic and ask an unusual question about it, you can get an unusual story. There you go. But it's really hard to do. And it's hard in part. Um, you were saying earlier that, you know, I worry what people think of me. I think a thing journalists in general do is worry what their peers will think of that. That's
2: true. And, and it's a if they are
3: worried about that, yeah. then what you do is you take the safe topic. Covering 96, you cover Clinton and Dole. Because
2: right. like, otherwise. What are you doing? Yeah. What are you doing? Right. No, I had a great, I had the great good luck to have Andrew Sullivan as my editor at the New Republic, and he was willing to let me go do this. He he saw it was more interesting than the campaign, so just keep doing it was the kind of kind of thing. And that that was, it, I've been blessed with my editors. I mean Andrew at the New Republic, Jerry Maserati and Adam Moss at the at the New York Times Magazine, and then I had a decade run with Graydon Carter and Doug Stump at Vanity Fair, that's ended. Um... But the the having people who let you follow these quixotic paths and just trust that the readers will want to follow too has been really lucky. One thing that
3: seems true about you is you are able to decide what you're laying in is just stay there. Like you don't do social media, as far as I can tell.
2: Nah, you know, for for but maybe for reasons other than you'd imagine. Um, if I was on really on Facebook or Twitter. I mean, one is all these pointless disputes that would arise, you know, you'd be, it's like, it, it would be like, in, I, I do feel like you're in Twitter every day you wake up and you're challenged to a duel and, and, <laughs> and it's dishonorable not to fight the duel. And, and what a waste of life, this, thing. I had someone call me, I had a note from my publisher yesterday from someone, I didn't get the whole name, but it was someone with a Welsh name. Who was outraged because I had said someone had welshed on their debt, and and but he, and his note to me was, "I want to have, I want to get you on the phone to discuss this, how offended I am that you use Welsh in this way, um, it's a cultural stereotype, blah blah blah," uh, and call me or 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 I'll go to Twitter, and I thought what an odd impulse to like, okay, we're going to try to start, but I'm not on Twitter, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> go to Twitter, fine, go to Twitter. But my real response is I'm Welsh, (laughs) so 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 I can say it. Uh, but but, uh, the the other big reason is that it creates this social obligation. Um, like every old girlfriend, uh, would all of a sudden have access to you and you'd feel obliged to respond. Uh, that you worried about the hordes of old girlfriends, No, exactly, the... but it's like who you went to <laughs> school with in second yeah. grade, all of a sudden everybody can get to you and, uh, it would just be t- too much. And I'd, f- I'd feel rude, not responding to everything that came in. And so I, I, I just, it would be, I wouldn't be able to manage it. It would just overwhelm my life. So do you why worry is, what people think of you? Do I care? Yeah. Oh yeah. I, I, I'm sure it's a little odd how I care, but of course I care. How okay. do you care? I care to the point. I care in this way that I don't read reviews of my books uh, because I learned long ago that all I remember, even of a rave review, is the is the quibble. Uh, so it gets it gives me no pleasure, and I never learn anything from them. If you're any good at what you do, you don't learn anything from reviews. I mean, nobody's going to teach you about your own book. Uh, you know what the if there are weaknesses to it, you know what they are. Um, so so I'm sensitive to criticism. Very, I think that's probably true. So God, if you're sensitive to criticism, stay off social media. And I have, maybe for that reason too, partly. Do you um, open
3: yourself to certain kinds of criticism? Have to. Yeah, like how
2: do you get criticism that is valuable? I mean, this is a great, it, it's a great question how how you deliver valuable criticism or receive it. Uh, and I have found just with, like, I coach, I've, I've spent a lot of time coaching kids that, in the end, I've basically given up on the idea that a directly critical remark is going to be taken in a way that it's going to improve the person you're delivering it to. That it basically has to be baked into a praise sandwich. And I, I have been very artful in surrounding myself in my writing life with people who are really good at baking criticism into a praise sandwich. So who they will tell me something, but it is... Almost never you screwed up, or you could, you really, that really was bad. It's, it takes the form of, wow, peace was great. I just wish that. And, and I, they know, they know I'll hear it. So, I, because I'm sensitive to it, uh I need people who can deliver it sensitively. And so, it's, that's the first thing is I have, I, I have been careful to keep in my life. So my first my, my first example is my book editor, Star Lawrence at Norton. Star has been my editor since I was 27 years old when I wrote Liar's Poker. Uh, and he's edited all my books. And Star still thinks of me as this snot-nosed 27-year-old who really did not know what he was doing. And uh, can he's not afraid to tell me, and I'm not afraid to hear it from him. But he does it. He, even then, he did it really well. You know, it was always kind of artfully, gently delivered, and he trusted that I could extract the criticism. Um, the and uh, my editor Vanity Fair, Doug Stump, was same way, and he's he's now moved to Audible, and he's my editor there. But uh, so so, I keeping in my life people who are who can deliver this is re- a really important part of it. And, and I tell you, one of the things that happens when writers, when they get older, if, they, if they're if they successful and their books sell, is that they make the mistake of making their lives too comfortable. They get worse because they cease to, nobody wants to tell them anything. Nobody wants to piss them off. People, nobody wants to tell them their book is bad, their idea is bad. So I've been, I, it's, what I, it's something I worry about because I know I'm sensitive to criticism and, but, you know, it'd be very easy just to eliminate all of it, but then be worse for it. Do you think that keeping yourself pulled
3: back from that level of public feedback? I mean, what you're saying is you've created a world where you are not exposed to most of the feedback that most writers today get. Right. You're not writing for one publication where you get a ton of letters. You're not on Twitter. You're not I can't, on Facebook. I can't
2: avoid a lot of it. I mean, people coming up in the gym and talking about
3: sure, it. Sure. But but it's it's smaller than if you yes, were. You know. Right. And you've constructed a a sort of like dedicated uh, feedback cycles. I wonder if that isn't part of how you, um, what's the right way to put this generate the confidence to go at the page again. Yeah. Well, I was going to say like go in a different direction
2: actually. Yeah. I, that I do, I do write, I do live and work in a pretty private space. Uh, that's helpful. That's very helpful. And it, now, it, now, I'm now at the point where it doesn't really occur to me that I'm wrong in, in how I'm going. Huh. I mean, in, in the sense that if I have a what what is clearly a kind of odd idea for how to go at a story, I'm pleased rather than worried about it. The trouble is getting the odd idea in the first place. If I think and I sense that's going to work, uh, and I it, it doesn't mean it always works. It, it just means that I do think that part of what attracts a reader to a piece of writing is surprise and if i find a surprising way to go at a story i know a reader is going to like that and i like it um and i don't i don't worry oh what is the world of journalism going to think for example or what the re- what are the reviews going to be so you're right it's probably helpful that i'm not sitting there with critics on my shoulder
3: well it's what the, the reason i'm driving this actually is not so much for you as for the rest of us which is that i think something happening to journalism is we're becoming a lot more homogeneous because we are all exposed to so much more of the same feedback. Yeah. We are listening to each other in this cacophony all the time. I mean, you know, whatever you you were a young a young writer in a kind of community of young writers once and so was I. You were regularly talking to like 20 journalists, something like that. Um I was anyway. Now on Twitter you're talking to hundreds. Right. Um and so the the capacity for thought that is not overly influenced by everybody else's thought has diminished.
2: That's you, like one you, of my that is one of my your, views on journalism. You feel that in your own work?
3: Part of the set of decisions I've made over the past year has been to fight it. What, so what moving away from DC has been one. Um, and it's to say nothing bad about DC or the people there. I could just feel that it was getting harder and harder for me to write about the things or think about the things I thought were important not the things that everybody else thought were important. Right. This podcast has a different incentive set than being on the news. And I've become more mistrustful of some of the ideas about what we should be talking about in those spaces. So I've been trying to, I don't want to say wall myself off. that That isn't quite the right term for it. Create but create your own space. Create more space. Um, Are you on social media? I am and I'm not, um, is the way to put it. So I tweet out, but I don't read twitter very much and i never look at mentions okay. um i'm not really on facebook uh i don't do so i yeah i mean i have to be aware of it and i feel like it comes to me a lot through my own work right like vox has a slack room said and you know you see a lot of tweets in there um and i i feel like i have to stay up on it for those reasons but i'm not on it very much that's healthy it is although do you, are in, you find you're happier I think I'd be much happier if I weren't on any of it. The thing that is tricky about it is I do think a lot of the political elite conversation is on Twitter. And so on the one hand, it's good to not be too up on that, because if you're writing for the audience, you don't want to only be writing for your peers. Um, On the other hand, to recede from it too much. Uh, comes with its own cost and particularly if, you know, part of what your work, I do a lot of policy writing and a lot of that conversation is on Twitter in a way. I don't think it's a good place for that conversation to be, but I think that the more I do a lot less cable news than I used to, I think the more you pull out of these spaces, the more you're abandoning them. (laughs) And if you think they're powerful, if you think they're important, that comes at a cost with some of certainly my sense of mission. Yeah. There's some balance. There's some balance that I don't know that I'm, uh, it's easier to maintain the balance in Oakland than in Washington for me for now, right? This is a thing where I can only speak for myself. Um, Other people would have, for a very long time, I thought my work was much better for being in Washington. And I really didn't think I'd ever leave. And it was only in this period, um, in the Trump period, that it began to feel like Washington's news cycle was so loud, that, and that the outcome of that was not like that I understood better, but I understood it worse. And I didn't know that until I came out here for 10 weeks for a book leave. And I thought what was going to happen was my work felt would feel smaller, but I would have more time to work. Um, And instead, I felt like a kind of fog lifted.
2: Do you think if Hillary Clinton was president, you'd still be in Washington?
3: I don't know. I do think about
2: that. I don't know. Um, So instead of fleeing the country, you just fled Washington.
3: (laughs) I think that it's possible um, that we were going to make a move one way or the other. That just would have been a thing that happened in our life, given where we were. Um, there were a lot of personal reasons for, for moving, but I don't know. Um, I think that if I believed that my work would have gotten much worse leaving Washington and I, I don't want to speak for my wife, but I think the same is true for her. I think I would not have had the, even if I thought it would be better for me, I'm not sure I would have had the fortitude to do it.
2: Did you have any health issues? No. It was interesting to me last year. I went and did a piece about kind of Trump's Washington, um, just a tr- kind of travel piece. Martian lands in Washington and is given a White House press pass and goes visit Steve Bannon and that kind of yeah. thing. And it was shocking the effect on the health and well-being of the journalists in the White House that Trump had had. That makes total sense Everybody to gained weight. Everybody had higher blood pressure. People's marriages were falling apart. The effect, at the same time, their work life was never, never felt more important. So, they, but they were just, everybody, it felt like everybody had, it's, it stuck um, low-voltage appliances into high-voltage sockets, and everybody was smoking out the ears.
3: One of the feelings of the Trump news cycle that I noticed in D.C. was that feeling of it's more toxic than ever, but it's never been more important. And I'm not sure that's true. I think that there is a very human and very much a very journalistic tendency to mistake a kind of urgency and volume for importance. And I think a lot of the things that are really important are not the ones we're talking
2: about. Well, that's true. So like the thing that's obviously true, obviously, true, we're cooking the planet and you can't you can't even
3: get it on the news. Exactly. And so I think that there is a what Trump was able to do and helped. I mean, he's a system that is like interacting with social media and a bunch of other things. But what he was able to do is speed everything up like a lot. And then through his tweets, create a constant sense of norm violation right like tap into like human beings right we're right. social creatures every day he would wake up and violate the social norms of the group and we are super attuned to that kind of violation in a way that we're not to say the people in his HHS who are putting regulations on medicaid they're going to throw people off right? right the the sense of outrage over that it's there if you ask people about it but they didn't experience it in the way that they would experience him waking up in the morning and calling elizabeth warren pocahontas or something like a, a rule I have is that, um, but like political violations that people can think of, in terms of their own community, they matter much more to them than things that you have to kind of do that abstract work to bring back down.
2: Yes. Are you saying is this a way of you saying that your work is more important than mine? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, because I, I, I'm confused. I, I, I was sitting here listening to. You, I think is, is Ezra telling me that the is that work, what you think
3: I'm saying? I know I'm teasing you. Because uh, the fifth the fifth risk seems to me to be exactly the kind of thing I'm talking about.
2: My attempt to get at what's important rather yeah. than what it would uh, rather than the noise. This is true. This like, is true. To me,
3: that was actually one of the things that was impressive um, about that book. That what you were able to do was pull people out and say behind all this this is going on
2: and, you, and this is the real effect but the re- person who made it possible for me to engage your reader in the subject was Donald Trump by the way he neglected it so i had a hook mm-hmm. the hook i didn't have a hook until he didn't show up for the transition the fact that there uh-huh. the, fa- the fact that the obama administration an administration led by a person who's a natural professor who has all these professorial types laced through his administration has spent more time than any presidency in history preparing to teach the next president how the thing works, what's going on. The best course ever created in this sub- important subject and no one shows up for it, it's a great beginning of a story. It's, I'm gonna show up and take the course. And the the flaw, the biggest flaw in The Fifth Risk was that, and I, I'm, I'm not sure I was right about this or wrong about this, but I decided right up front, that no matter how well I did it, no reader was going to follow me more than about 220 pages. But that's all I needed to do was to get them interested in the subject and then the the world could take over from there. This is interesting. Let's now go look at the Department of Interior, even if he didn't. Um, But there was a part of me that thought maybe this should be 2,000 pages long and it'd be the whole government because there was no, it, it wouldn't, the, the level of interest would, my level of interest would never have subsided. I could have gone anywhere and done the same thing go get the briefings uh, that they didn't bother to get, learn how this operation works. And all of a sudden, you had people who might not otherwise want to talk to you really urgently feeling the need to talk to you because they needed to tell people what they knew. Um, so Trump makes it all possible. If he'd even made a pass, uh, if he'd kept fired Chris Christie and kept the people that Christie had hired to do the transition and done a kind of phony transition where he showed up and pretended to listen, um, it would have made my job harder. Huh. Uh, but Why? because, because it's this great, you got these people sitting, sitting on top of the nuclear stockpile in the department of energy, waiting to explain how it works and sitting in an office, and no one shows up, no one, and and I can go hear it for the first time. The reader get the reader all of a sudden is you can hear it for the first time. What is this thing that we don't know about? What is this thing they who's supposed to be running it don't know about? It's just it was a natural hook into the thing. And so the the, the biggest prop, the two biggest problems I dealt with with that book, none of it was is there a material. The biggest problems were where to go. And when to stop, Uh, because really you could have gone anywhere and you could have just made it a life's work. How do you decide when to stop?
3: I'm writing a book right now. And when to stop is it could just go forever.
2: It could go forever. And so I did. So let me start with where to go, because where to go, I decided, all right, I'm going to go. First thing, I'm eliminate all those departments that are on kind of the top of people's minds, state, defense, treasury. The prestige places that everybody knows, they have sense must be important, even if they don't know what it does. Find places where they can't imagine that if it's mismanaged, we're at peril. Commerce, agriculture, energy. You know, no one knows what it does. Uh, so start, but but where to end? I did not know, and the material gave it to me. And it was, and it really ended when I, it ended when I hit this little anecdote that I thought. That's the end of the book <laughs> and, and I just feel it's the end of the story. And it was, the anecdote was I was, I was retracking the path a tornado had taken through Oklahoma, and which is a year before, which is a really, I'm surprised people don't do this. It's kind of a fun thing to do. The tornado leaves a scar on the landscape and you can actually follow it. Everything's ripped up a year later. The trees are gone, the houses are gone. There's a, there's a path on the ground and I was following this path with the local emergency manager, uh, reliving the damage the tornado had done by way of ostensibly trying to describe the importance of the National Storm Center, which is part of the National Weather Service, which tries to save people's lives from, from tornadoes. And he said, he, by the by, he tells me this story, and everybody in Oklahoma is a Republican. Everybody in rural Oklahoma is where I was. It's red, as red as it gets. As Trump loving as it gets, uh, and he we get to this house. It's gone. Half of it's still gone, and the barn. And there's a barn that was there and gone. And he says, when I he was do he was trying to keep in front of this tornado and get people out of its way. Um, and the tornado jumped over his head, and then he found himself following it in real time the year before. He got to this house, and he knew there was a a little old lady. I think her name was Ms. Finley, uh, who lived in the house, and he saw what had happened in the house, and he thought, crap, she's dead. Uh, The thing just ripped it apart. And he comes back later and finds, no, her son had gotten her out of the way and put her in a shelter. And uh, she'd come back to find that her house and her barn had been ripped up. And then he comes back with uh, the FEMA director, who's trying to figure, a FEMA person rather, who's trying to figure out how much compensation various people need or how much the FEMA can do for them. And the woman, Miss Finley, is talking to the FEMA guy and she says, "Uh, you know, it's an odd thing. I prayed and prayed and prayed that a tornado would come and take the barn away. And I never imagined it would take the house. And she was distraught. She lost her house, but she really was pleased that the barn had been removed from her property. And the femur guy says, I asked the obvious question, like, why are you praying for the barn to be destroyed? And she said, "Uh, a decade ago, my husband hung himself in that barn. And every time I drive out of the driveway or drive back in, I have to look at it and I I relive it. And so she had this pent-up, this emotional need for destruction and prayed for it but had overshot and got more destruction than she planned for and i thought that's the trump story that that's the people who are these people who are for trump this anger is at the center of his 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 campaign his success whipping it up is at the center of his popularity destruction is what people want they want the federal government destroyed they want immigrants destroyed they want all the stuff they want destroyed they never imagine what this machine that's bent on destruction will actually destroy and I thought, she just gave me the end of the story. Uh, and, and that, but before that, I thought maybe I'll go on and do another department. And I said, and I thought, why The book just ended. So, uh, it was. It, and that came at the end of the reporting came at, well, it came at what became the that end was, of the,
3: That was, that was, I like, said, I'm
2: good. <laughs> I'm, I can't do anything. I can't, I can't find a better note to end it on. And everything else is going to feel like a run on sentence. So, it, but having said that, I feel like I left, you know, nine-tenths of the federal government, uh, unexplored and material. It's like, I felt like I mined a gold mine and left nine-tenths of the gold in it. See, so I have a bunch of
3: questions about that. So do you think if not for Trump that you couldn't have told some of those stories in a way that the audience would have been there for?
2: I think it would have been very hard. I, I, I wouldn't have done it. I just wouldn't have done it. So I would have sensed, no, I can't, I can't pull this off. Trump made it possible.
3: The the thing that I think at least, I'm not sure that's wrong. I think that's probably right. Um, I think, and I, I say this is a self-critical thing, that if we were, that there is a constant audience market for those stories. The problem is just having the separation, the time to find them.
2: Well, right. that's a luxury, right? It's
3: a it's a luxury. But I, I think that we underestimate oftentimes. The audience will, in my view, um, the audience will respond to things they know they want and things they do don't know they want. Um, Both those both those work. The problem is just one is a lot easier than the other. That's true. And the news gives you like, you know, you want to know more about the news, right? Like everybody's talking about something you need to know about it. Generating that is harder. And often you could be wrong, right? You can have given something the audience knew they didn't want or didn't know they didn't want. (laughs) And so there's just a lot more risk to go to go off on your own path.
2: Well, this is, you know, I was, I reviewed a book in this coming uh, issue, upcoming issue of the New York Times book review. Uh, by a young woman writer named Casey Sepp, who I never met. And it's a book about, it's called Furious Hours, and it's a book about um, Harper Lee, who wrote To Kill a Mockingbird. But it's a really interesting book about Harper Lee, because what she does is she goes and writes the book that Harper Lee tried to write as her second book and never got out of her. It was a true crime story. She goes and writes Harper Lee's book for her, basically, and uses it as a way to get you even more interested in Harper Lee and why she couldn't write this book. And as I I say in the review, as I was reading it, I was just reminded that so much of great storytelling is is leading the reader to really want to know what you're about to tell them without the reader knowing you're leading them. Leaving the reader with the feeling that, ah, his interest is his idea, even if it wasn't really his idea. And she does this beautifully. it is part of the art of the, of, of the job is, is creating that feeling of you need to know this. Um, and there are a lot of different ways to do it. But having said all that, with the fifth risk, I mean, people in the abstract all would agree they probably should know something about what their government does. It's not, an, it's not a trivial subject, right? Uh, it's just that they think it's going to be boring and uh are thinking maybe it has nothing to do with them but if you frame it as i framed it no actually w- what you don't know is going to kill you uh then, they, <laughs> then then they start to get interested
3: uh, that, that, that's a trick in the news always <laughs>
2: <laughs> that's right and so uh, yeah uh, so. on the risk part of that you uh, did a conversation
3: a great conversation with my friend chris says um and you talked about donald trump as a machine for ratcheting up the likelihood of a lot of unlikely bad things happening which is always how I used to describe Donald Trump. And I think that if I'm going back to my uh, assumptions when this all began, and then if you had told me really how detached and ridiculous and eccentric he would be as a president, I would say, all right, the tail risk is going to hit. And we have not had-
2: That's why it's, ta- it's still, a, these are still you, remote well, risks.
3: Well, this is my question for you. Is it that Is it that it's all just tail risk and he really is exploding all of it and, you know, thankfully it just hasn't uh, paid out yet? And in some cases, like maybe the response to Hurricane Maria, even it has. Or is it that the federal government, the federal government you were reporting on, is actually strong enough that it has been he has not partially due to his disinterest, partially due to due to what he wants to do, been able to magnify the risk as much as he hasn't been able to trigger
2: a catastrophe yet uh, through his ineptitude. Uh, I think the answer is both. I think that the federal government, it's a its a tribute to the federal government that is still functioning as well as it's functioning, given how it's being led. Uh, and it's, a, you know, it's a sl- giant slow moving thing. And the fact that Trump doesn't know anything about it. You no, know, the, the, the narrative that he's, a uh, you know, a wacko libertarian who's put there to dismantle the federal government. And he's got, and that was why he ran. And that's, that seems to me such baloney. I think the truth, the truth is he's completely indifferent to it and ignorant of it, and doesn't see any reason why he needs to know anything. Um, he said as much to Chris Christie. Part of the reason for this is he actually has no aptitude for managing anything, so he senses at, that actually, if he paid attention to it, it wouldn't be it wouldn't be of any use anyway, because he wouldn't have anything useful to to do there. Uh, he, it's not a problem he can solve. Um, and but and then the pattern of talent acquisition, you would call it that, that he that to his talent acquisition for running the government has been so chaotic. And it hasn't been, there have been places where people who are ideologues who were want to dismantle the agency they've been put in charge of have been put in place. But that's not that hasn't been universally true. If he were more competent and was trying to do damage to the society actively, we might have seen the catastrophe already. And if the federal government wasn't as strong as it has been, and if there weren't some checks, like the Senate, big thing that's happened is that Trump proposes a budget. He probably doesn't even know what's in it, but the but but an ideologue, mm-hmm. Nick Mulvaney at the OMB, proposes a budget that if that enacted would be catastrophic. Yeah. And the Senate says, no, you're actually gonna have to spend the money on this. You can't just cut that program. Uh and so the Senate's been a, a check on it, uh, a big check on it. But the longer he's there and the more he pushes or pays no attention uh or puts people who are actively dismantling their enterprises the 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 more likely something really bad will happen having said all that let's list some things that are really directly a result of government neglect and incompetence a couple of plane crashes thanks to the faa deciding that boeing should regulate itself uh, kids in cages on the border. That's not a plan. That that happened because they've lost track of who's- I don't agree with that. You think that's a plan?
3: Dar- uh, my immigration colleague, Daryl Lynn, would say they made a set of decisions here. They knew what they were doing. They had made them before people began reporting on them. They knew what the consequences of them would be. You think they knew all that? I don't think they- not in every particular, but they absolutely knew what they were doing. You
2: think they like the kids cages story?
3: I think, no, I don't think they like the story, but I think they've made a series of decisions recognizing that what they are going to do is use the cruelty with which they treat those families as a signal to the families who haven't come yet. Yeah.
2: Well, like, that, I, I, think, I
3: think that is a hundred percent. You think the if they do it all decision, over again,
2: they do the same thing.
3: It depends how they feel about the political blowback. Yeah. Right. But they want it. I mean, things like this had happened before, not at this scale. And they wanted that they what they believe right their theory of the case is that we treat these families coming here so kindly that more come so like the cruelty is the policy yeah like so that one that one like people question this policy early like this was brought to them it was going to happen right and they would say some of this even began with right, Obama.
2: Okay. I, um, i'm willing to believe you oh,
3: man i hate what they did there so much <laughs> yeah so <laughs> because but, cruelty but, being the policy so, is like the
2: but but the kind of thing that could happen the kind of uh, catastrophic, kind of tail risk that the government manages that may lead to actual catastrophe, uh, as a result of the way they're managing it, might not happen for thirty years, yeah. right? I, think, I mean, you, you depending, you frame you can frame long-term scientific research yeah. as a, a potential catastrophic risk. Not doing it, um, the solution to global warming. Might have come out of research done in the Energy Department that they no longer fund, that kind of thing, or the ability to grow crops. Uh, that we if we lose a certain ability to provo- provide food for ourselves because we don't properly administer the science programs in the Department of Agriculture, those those are those are those are problems that Donald Trump will never see, which is why he doesn't care about them. Uh, but there are sharp catastrophic risk that could happen any where something bad could happen any time, And the nuclear arsenal is a big a big yeah. one. Right. So would you be satisfied if a nuke went off with it? It shouldn't go off in the panhandle of Texas. Would that would that answer your question?
3: I'd be satisfied. In a sense,
2: would, would you say, <laughs> yes, now I see that Donald Trump's ne- management idiocy has led to a problem. Uh, I would be horrified. You'd be
3: horrified, but you, but you, you... but let me, let me. I think you're. I think that's a psych caricature of my position. I would have said, for instance, that the economy and the stock market wouldn't have held up this well. That would have been a thing I believed about Donald Trump. Like looking back at my own views on it, I think he is, His management of foreign policy has been both more inept than I would have, like, honestly, even conceived of. And I think the world has decided to treat us like we have temporarily lost our minds yep. and to give us a little bit of space. <laughs> yeah, they've been very kind. They've been very kind. Um, there's like a lot of people are not- Hold our
2: breath, this will pass. Yeah. Americans will figure out the, who
3: they are and- Disaster response has been horrifying. Um, But I thought it was possible, for instance, to your point about nuclear, um, I thought it was possible that Donald Trump would, out of a fit of pique, start an exchange that could go nuclear. Yeah. Well, he right? might still. And he might still. I mean, the early stuff with North Korea was the scariest thing of everything that has happened to me. Right. The early stuff where he said, you know, little rocket man, we're going to rain hellfire <laughs> and fury like that <laughs> right. You'll be wiped off the map. Right. And he <laughs> pulled back from that. The one saving grace of Donald Trump to me, he does not seem to want war. Is one thing I will say for him. He's a physical coward. He's a physical coward. And I think that his view of things is that war is just a waste of time. <laughs> like, you don't make money off of it. And he has not wanted to escalate in a couple of situations where I really could have imagined him doing. Doesn't mean he won't. Venezuela stuff worries me. There are a lot of people around him who want to go to war with Iran. He
2: used war as a distraction if, he was, if, if it was useful to him.
3: Yeah, I think that's right. But he he seems to have a sight... He, people thought this about him early on, and then they didn't. And he has often seemed to me to have... A kind of isolationist instinct, which is better than mm-hmm. him having an interventionist instinct. Oh, yeah, absolutely. He doesn't want to <laughs>
2: conquer the world.
3: Yeah. He wants to be like, he wants to pull back.
2: Yeah.
3: Um. And then a lot of things have people stopped him from doing, right? Like shutting down the border, for instance, Um. all kinds of things that would have been just straight constitutional crisis. So he's been checked. Yeah. So he's been a real test of the system, which is alternately passed some and failed a bunch in my view. I mean, I think co- I, I I think your point is well taken about the Senate being an effective check, but I also think that Donald Trump has shown how weak congressional accountability really is if if a single party controls both the White House and the Congress. Yeah. Like that to me, the degree to which his own party has enabled him, that to me is a real like the system is broken. And if you had somebody more dangerous than him in there, there would be no check.
2: Yeah. I buy that. Yeah. Um,
3: is that part of it? Does any of that lead to the podcast for you?
2: No. Uh, I should say yes, because it gives the podcast, uh, a bigger frame than it actually had when I started. makes it seem more important, but, um, the extent the government informed the podcast was its actions and lack of action in the financial sector. Mm -hmm. Two of the episodes are at least partly or all about finance. Uh, but the, the, go back to the financial crisis, it was just breathtaking to me. One, the referees who didn't do their jobs, but also the referees who actively screwed up their jobs and needed reform and nobody bothered reforming them. And that there was a constituency in place to preserve their status, the ratings agencies. I, I mean, It is madness that the ratings agencies are paid by the Wall Street banks to rate their bonds. It's madness. I mean, what you hope is that the financial system just becomes more skeptical and doesn't depend on the ratings in the same way. But you don't get the financial crisis that we got without Moody's and Standard Poor's slapping AAA ratings on a lot of stuff that was going to go bad. And you don't get that unless Goldman Sachs and Citigroup and Merrill Lynch are paying them to do it. And they are explicitly, they, the government tasked them with that refereeing role um, and they, they failed. And I, so I was think that the, that that's where the government intersects with the podcast. I wasn't thinking Trump and, and in the backdrop, of course, Trump seems to be just regulators or referees and he's just like, things all regulation is stupid. Uh, I, I don't know. What, I don't know exactly what his position is on this. It's funny. I don't know. I don't know if he even has one exactly, but he, it's an applause line he gets, right? When he says too much Washington re- regulation. Uh, and he'll go both ways on it. Right? Yeah.
3: He'll also have the argument that it's all bought by these Goldman Sachs guys. I mean, there's the populist side of him and the conservative side of him.
2: He is not a man a unduly burdened
3: m- by consistency.
2: No, no, no. no. And I, I don't think he actually thinks about any of this stuff. No, He gets up and he says stuff with a sense, trying to get, figure out wh- what's going to get the big applause. Mm-hmm. And... That's where I think following him, going, projecting him forward, you just need to imagine what's going to get crowds of people in Alabama and Florida get up and cheer. And that's, that's the scary. The, those are the scary scenarios in my mind are when I start to imagine the kind of things he might say that they would like and that will all of a sudden become an idea for him uh, because he's kind of like just responded to that, to the crowd. Um, he's another kind of machine. He's a machine for destroying trust. And he's destroyed, undermined. I mean, he's he walks into places where the trust is vulnerable, and he takes advantage of the situation. He's he's undermined trust in the electoral system. He remembers going to say he was going to say it was rigged if it, if he lost Hillary. Uh, trust in the media, uh, to the extent there was any trust left in the in Congress. I mean, he's just done. Everywhere you turn, uh, he trust in just a spoken word. Everything that comes out of his mouth is a lie, right? Uh, and I can't, I just can't, it's a, surprising to me he hasn't gotten to trust in the dollar yet. So that you, to your point, it is amazing how well the financial system has held up. Um, and I'm waiting for the moment when he gets up and says, we're just not going to pay China back. We don't have these debts.
3: Oh, and he's hinted at it
2: a bunch. Oh my God. He's, I it just, you can just, you, the moment the debt becomes a serious issue, which is the moment interest rates tick up some, some. And people are saying, oh, we can't afford to do this. We can't afford that because we have to service the debt. What debt? You can hear them say, that's not debt. That's theft. They took They stole that money. Now, how you actually selectively default on the debt to the Chinese and the Japanese or whoever you want to default to, I don't really know. But you just put the idea out there and you can create a massive problem. And we have this situation now. It's funny. Um, People look at the financial crisis as, I mean, it was a crisis. But we had the government there behind it. That, that we ha- there was a there was a ref mm-hmm. who was still a, had authority, and was able to step in and just make everything calm down. When the when the government is the problem, you have a different sort of crisis, uh, and I I think he has a capacity to trigger that sort of crisis if he's if he's his back is against the wall.
3: One of the reasons I asked is because. There actually seemed to me to be a connection between um, the work you're doing right now in refs and the fifth risk. There is. Which is that there's a, I don't want to call it growing. I'm not sure it hasn't been there before, but there's a respect in some of the work right now for the people who are just trying to make the rules of the game work and get pilloried for it, right? We're in this very anti-elite moment. And sometimes elite means elite, but sometimes it just means people in the system. And it does seem to me that some of what you've been circling around is that if you really try to blow up the system, you find that there was a lot of stuff in the system that you relied on, whether or not you knew it's it. It's there for a reason. It's there for a reason. Yeah. People, are, people will correct me on this, but I think it's called Chesterton's Fence. And the idea is that you can't take this fence away until you can tell me why it was here in the first place. That's a
2: great line. Yeah, it's but I could, I, could
3: have the, I could have
2: the reference wrong. But it's a very good idea.
3: Yeah. And, you know, there's a, a certain way in which... All of these players and mod- we've like come into this moment where uh, the idea of gatekeeping has become like intrinsically derided, intrinsically unfair. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think about how much there was discussion, even in the 2016 Democratic primary of like they did that a political party would intervene in its own primary. Right. Not even that it really did. But that it would have rules about its own primary, about who could participate, that that began to seem unfair. We're very uncomfortable.
2: Well, look at with... the way we treat sports referees. Yeah, as if what every every decision they make is somehow tainted. Right. One side sees it as evidence of corruption or malice or whatever, but it's it's it isn't people just trying to do their jobs. Nobody thinks that anymore. They think Ref, you suck or we won. Right. That, that's it. <laughs> those are the two. Those are the two things people think. We won, Don't th- n- Never mind the refs, or we lost, the refs are to blame. Does it seem to you that we're in a kind of like a trust cycle, that
3: we lose trust in these institutions that are failing us, that we turn against them, so they fail even more. So we lose more trust in them. They're like, there's a way in which this feeds on
2: itself. Absolutely true. This is absolutely true. And it's hard to see how you bounce it in the other direction. The only way you head in another direction is to have a, a real catastrophe. It takes a great depression to start build, building new institutions from. Uh, that's what worries me, is that is that um, it's gonna take a lot more pain. It's gonna take 10 million people dying in some pandemic. It's gonna take, you know, whatever it is, it's gonna take that kind of thing to biff the mind of the culture in a different direction. Uh, Do you think there's an alternative path? A plausible
3: alternative path? I don't know what it would be.
2: I don't know what it would be. Yeah, you know, you're talking about a country that, that I don't feel I know quite as well as I thought I knew three or four years ago. Uh, it's far more disturbed place than I thought it was, far more kind of unsettled. And so I just don't know. I'm basically, by nature, an optimist. So most hours of most days, you ask me that question, I would say, you know, I can see it's going to come from the de- Democrats, I think. Someone who can sell a vision, for example, of government people, a positive vision, and that there will be a majority for that vision. But, uh, I don't know that. I don't know. I don't know. I, I wouldn't be writing the things I do and doing the podcasts I do if I didn't think there was a different way out. And you do these things and you hope people listen and it moves the world in that direction. But there's a part of me that does think it, it, that it ha- things have to get really dark before they get better.
3: I'm going to hope we get the The better, the better (laughs) path. (laughs) That's probably a good
2: time to to bring
3: this in. So let me ask you the final question here, which is always, what are three books you've read that have influenced you that you'd recommend to the audience? Uh,
2: The book that got to me first, I maybe made me want to write, was Huckleberry Finn. The degree of pleasure I took from that book when I read it, I mean, it's out of all proportion to the quality of the book, as great as the book is. Um I mean I am listening to the book I just finished listening to the book a couple weeks ago with my son on who is 12 years old and as an audiobook and it's got all kinds of problems but when I read it it just got inside me as did confederacy of dunces comic novels is really mm-hmm. what got me going when I was first oh, that's interesting you can see it, it was, that in your writing it was actually. lucky jim it was confederacy of dunces it was uh it was huckleberry Finn, and um as a writer I was hugely influenced by George Orwell's essays. The power of just simple clarity uh, really um, struck me uh, when I, and that was all the important books in my life were books I read between the ages of about 16, 15, 16, and about 25. And, and since then, the more, the closer I became, came to being a writer, a professional writer, the more I did it. The harder it was for a book to get inside me um i i I have too many defenses now i I, I, and i see too many problems that i didn't used to see um so orwell's essays huckleberry finn with confederate the comic novel genre um and uh the early the early work of tom Wolfe, um which i picked up when i was like I don't know, 12 or 13 years old, and it was the first time I ever realized someone wrote a book. It, it, it was the first time the authorial voice was so strong, it occurred to me to flip, to see who had written it. Mm-hmm. Whereas with most kids' literature, you don't. You know, Hardy Boys, you don't. You just, it's a book. It didn't even, and and Tom Wolfe made me very aware of the author. Um, so i say that's, and as like t- books that are of the type I write, um, like long form narrative nonfiction. It was Wolf, I think, who really just did about one of the best ones with the right stuff. I love that book. Uh, And he's a really good example of of making you feel interested in something you didn't know that you were quite interested in, taking a peculiar different angle into a subject that everybody thought they knew.
3: Michael Lewis, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Thank you to Michael Lewis for being here. There's something I was drawing out in that conversation. I think it came out, but I, I want to take a moment to, to emphasize it. Something that is important about his work, uh, and that I think about for myself, for my colleagues, is the ability to do something different than other people are doing. And it's easy enough to say, well, that guy's Michael Lewis. Of course he can do whatever he wants. But you know, when he was at the New Republic, um, and was he in 96, uh, and was a young reporter, the ability to say, I'm going to cover a different question here than everybody else is covering was not as obvious. Um, And sure, he had the skills and has this kind of clearly some level of unbelievable natural talent to do it. But I don't know. I think a lot about what it takes to ask a question different than other people are asking. I I say to him in in, in the show, and I I do believe it's true, I I worry that industry-wide it's getting harder to ask questions other people aren't asking. Um, I think that is a byproduct of some of the technologies we're all on together. And I don't know, it's something worth cultivating. Uh, I talk a little bit in here about the ways I'm trying to cultivate it in myself. Um, and I, I do hope that doesn't come across as critical of others, because others are responding uh, to to this era differently than I personally do, and others also have different jobs than I do. So I think if you're, say, covering the Trump White House, you really do need to be in DC. But I don't know, I, I think it is a worthwhile question to try to be mindful about. Um, Are you able to intentionally frame the questions of your work? Um, If that is work that allows that, Um, or are the questions being framed for you? Uh, And sometimes we don't have a choice about that. Some jobs don't allow us to to, to frame the questions, but sometimes we have a lot more capacity in that space than we think. And certainly I have more capacity in that space than we think, than I think, (laughs) or sometimes than I demonstrate. And it's good to be assessing your own environment. To ask which version of yourself uh, it's bringing up. Is it the version of yourself that kind of you're able to direct, or is it a version of yourself that is deeply reactive and is directed by by people outside of you? Um, on the day I did this podcast, I also happened to do the podcast with Jenny O'Dell, which I, I think is probably out by now, and with Richie Davidson, uh, the, who studies meditation. And, and it was interesting to have these three podcasts that are in different ways about attention and in different ways about creativity, and in different ways about what it takes to be self-directed in a world that wants to direct you. Um, Davidson talks about stimulus-directed attention. Um, And I think there's a lot of that uh, right now in journalism, stimulus-directed attention. Trump is constantly a stimulus trying to direct our attention to what he wants us to see. And it is an important kind of resistance. And it is important to being able to see things clearly to try to find refuge from that. Um, It's something I think we're getting better at as an industry, but not sure we're quite there yet. Anyway, um, for what it's worth. Uh, Thank you to Michael Lewis for being here. To Topher Ruth for engineering. To Jeffrey Geld for producing. The Ezra Klein Show is a Vox Media podcast production. More to-dos,
1: less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals.